Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. 50 years after a forward-thinking jobs initiative to help Blacks in Rochester, New York, they're back where they started. The question of why and what other cities can learn from it in today's podcast. Dennis Bassett pretty recently retired, December 31st, as Director of Operations for Ortho Clinical Diagnostics. He's also worked at Bausch & Lomb and Kodak in high-ranking positions. And as an African-American working at Kodak back in the 1970s, where it was headquartered in Rochester, he has a unique perspective after all these years on a jobs program begun in Rochester. 40% Black population there, many poor, terrible school system, riots and racial strife in the 60s. All of that led way to the giant corporations headquartered in Rochester starting jobs initiatives to help open up jobs to local Blacks. But more than 50 years later, things seem no better in general for so many of the Black residents in Rochester who remain largely unemployed and in poverty at a rate higher than other racial groups and at a rate even higher than their African-American counterparts in other American cities. So what happened? What went wrong and what can other cities learn as they grapple with these very same issues in 2022. That's the topic of this week's cover story on Full Measure. That'll be on Sunday, February 20th. You'll hear from Bassett and a lot of other folks in the story. But in today's podcast, an extended discussion with Dennis Bassett about back then and now from my story that I call Black to the Future. Here's Dennis Bassett. Happy retirement. In the context of what we're going to talk about today, could you just give me a couple sentences or a paragraph on the story of efforts here in Rochester is the story of what in, in terms of trying to make viable businesses and opportunities for blacks in this community and making sure um, to improve the economic standing? Well, as a, and let's uh, start with, I am a, uh, an individual that has worked in corporate America, uh, 17 years with Eastman Kodak Company, 18 years with Bausch & Lomb, seven years with uh, Orthoclinical Diagnostics, and six and a half years with IBM. So my 50 years or so has been all in the corporate arena. Lived in Rochester for now close to, uh, I want to say, 35 years, and traveled 10 homes, moved for corporate America, and Rochester has been my home, and so I, for the last 35 years, and I, I, take, I take it to heart that a number of companies have tried and are working to help minority businesses to thrive. I think uh, 
I think it's been successful on certain fronts, but I think it's, uh, it's not a unified effort. I think we've got some great hearts. I'd like to throw out a couple of names. Wegmans, Danny Wegmans works very hard to include uh, people of color in his organization. I think, uh, I think Bob Duffy, who is uh, the uh, Chamber of Commerce, is, is, is trying to start initiatives to help uh, African Americans get a part of business. But you know, I think it starts with uh, education, ed educating our, our young people. Rochester has a population of about a little over 211,000 people, include the suburbs, add another 400,000. 39% of Rochester's population is African American. That is a big number. That is a big number that we can't overlook. And I think it starts with how are we educating our young people to go into corporate America? I know I had formulas when I was hired, when I was a hiring manager, when I was trying to bring on people of color in, in an organization. And as you can tell, I'm a person of color myself. And all of my managers, for example, had to start with, if you're going to hire someone, you have to bring a diverse pool to the table. Because if you're not bringing a diverse pool to the table, you sure as heck not going to hire a person of color. So that's the first step. Now, how many companies are doing that? I don't know. Because that's the old we can't find them uh, doesn't fly anymore. Okay, let me, you introduced a lot of topics I want to talk more about. But first of all, if you know, and, and we don't have to go way off into this, but what brought so many African Americans to Rochester? Because I was reading some stuff that talked about them not being native Rochester Rochesterans. Yeah, we, we probably have very few native Rochester. And that being sort of a barrier initially to jobs, perhaps. But what, what, when did that happen when so many African Americans came to Rochester? Well, I, I think from my knowledge, and my knowledge may not be uh, totally, uh, uh, you know, what yeah, I would By the history book. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we got great universities. You know, we got University of Rochester, we got Nazareth, we got uh, RIT. We got we got a number of universities that attract uh, a broad base of of, of students. Uh, Monroe Community College is a huge community college system, and it uh, and it's I think they've got the formula where you really don't need to go to a four-year college if you can do well in a two-year college and then springboard into a, a four-year school and only have to pay two years of, of a pretty big university ticket, you, uh, you're, you're, you're ahead of the game. So I think that is what helped Rochester to get the influx of, of what I would call transplants because I would probably say my friends, my, my, my associates that I worked with when I was coming up through the ranks at Kodak, and 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 I and uh, Bauchinla, very few were, were were from Rochester, native Rochesterians, and that is a very unique situation that a city as as large as Rochester doesn't have a whole a number of homegrown uh, people of color. Okay, let's talk about Kodak because from what I read, there was some recognition. I'm not sure what triggered it, but in the 1970s of an idea that maybe there should be specific initiatives to try to give more opportunities to black employees and help them 
um, get more good opportunities. And didn't Kodak have special emphasis on this? Is that why they headquartered here, or did they just have a sub-program that was all about that? Well, and I may not, Kodak uh, worked with uh, the, 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 what I would call the inner city community, worked with reverends, worked with churches to bring uh, African Americans into, into Kodak, into, uh, into entry-level positions. Uh, I know the years that I worked at Kodak, I was, I rose to the ranks and, and had an opportunity to be assistant to a senior vice president at, uh, at Kodak, uh, Frank Strong, who was very, very actively and positive on trying to bring African Americans into the, into the organization. But, you know, the, the thing that I felt we, a lot of good efforts at the top. CEO, senior level management, but I, I think the one thing that caused the programs not to gain the kind of traction that it should have gained is that you've got to sell it to the first line managers. You've got to sell it to the hiring managers. You've got to sell it to the individual that is interviewing the people and bringing them into the company. And I used to always say uh, the CEO, the chief operating officers, the vice presidents, can be all for it, but if they don't get the middle managers involved, it's not going to happen. That happened in some cases. In some cases, it did. And, uh, but I don't, I don't think we, we, it came to the fruition that we would have wanted it to. Uh, in, the same, in the same realm with uh, minority vendors, getting minority vendors on board with, with uh, uh, being partners with an Eastman Kodak company. In some cases, it worked very well. But who brings the vendors on? Who brings the vendors into the organization? Middle managers, the, the people that do the bidding, the people that do the looking at what vendors to bring in, just as, as the people that bring, just as the people that bring the uh, employees in. It's middle managers. And that's, and that's where the bottleneck may have been. Were you at one time one of the highest ranking black employees at Kodak? Yes, I was. The or one of the? No, one of the. I, I would say I was, I was always in the, when I left, I was probably third or fourth. And uh, Was that as high as you were going to go, that offer probably? Did you have the feeling, that was a pretty high position, you said, yeah. you described, but was that it? Well, I thought that, you know, we all have, whether you're black or, or white, you, you have that ambition that you can conquer the world. I felt that I could conquer the world. I could do more, and uh, and I thought that I had reached the level that I was going to reach at at Eastman. I wanted to, as a sales leader, I wanted to be a, I wanted to manage a, a national organization. I wanted to, I wanted to have, I wanted to be the captain of the ship. Is that what you went on to do? And fortunately, fortunately, I left Kodak, and I went to Bausch and Lomb, and. Uh, and in 14 months, I was made vice president of sales at Bausch Law. So it's it's there, you know. I, I I don't consider myself any special talent. I just you know I I, I call. I used to tell my boss and uh, friends of mine. I said, "Don't let them see you sweat. You just got to work hard." And uh, and I was fortunate enough to do that. And I think Bausch gave me an opportunity. 
that Kodak didn't give me, but Kodak gave me a lot of opportunity in those 17, 18 years to get to where I was when I left. So I, I feel great about Eastman Kodak. It's often said you have to leave to sometimes you're pigeonholed at a place or exactly a company. Right. You know. um, so when you talk about mental management, I'm not sure what's implicit in there. Are they, with, when maybe some are not on board, naturally are there not enough people coming in the door? Are they actively not hiring blacks who come in or, or promoting? Like, what is your theory behind if there's so many in the pool, in the potential job pool, why do they have to be on board? Why naturally wouldn't there be more in the um, That's a good question. Ranks? And it's, it, 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 really, it really boils down to uh, people hiring their own image. Right. I was going to say, them not seeing the same potential in somebody else that they may have. Just They think they're making a business decision. That's right. But gravitating to a different I'm going to I'm going to gravitate to where I'm comfortable. And it, and it could be, it could be university. I'm, if I graduated from uh, Notre Dame, I think people in Notre Dame are the greatest people in the world. So guess what? I'm going to probably hire those people from Notre Dame or Michigan. If, if I'm a West Coast person, I think people from the West Coast are great. But if I'm an East Coast person, I think the West Coast people, all they did was, you know, write on uh, those uh <laughs> Those, those boards and, and party all the time. But uh, being a little serious, I think the, the, the key thing with, with why we didn't, why it didn't happen as, as, as I would have liked for it to happen is that people have biases. They, they, they have their biases and they, they being comfortable, being comfortable is is also very important. Now, what I say bias, I wherever I grew up, I went to school in the South. I went to school in Knoxville, Tennessee in 1966. And the first week I was in school, I was carted off to jail because I went through the wrong door. Knoxville, Tennessee, 1966. And I grew up in Gary, Indiana, and I had never been further south than Indianapolis, Indiana. And so my eyes were open to a whole new world of a country that I, that was, it was very small. Now, why do I think people that are in management positions didn't have very similar experiences? They grew up in their world. They grew up in their bubble. They grew up with the kids they, they played with. I have never, I went to an all-black elementary school, I went to an all-black junior high school, I went to an all-black high school, and I went to an all-black college. And I worked in a predominantly white environment. I had to make a lot of adjustments. And I say people that are in the management ranks, unless they really think out of the box, unless they really have passion about it, there's a lot of obstacles in looking at a pool of, of, of applicants and saying, if I never, and I bet you there's a lot of people in middle management never sit in a classroom with an African American. I'm going to give that person a chance. That's a, that's a big leap. But that was in the 1970s. Right. Do you think today is 
vastly different in terms of how management would think and who's there when looking at the job pool? Another good question, and I would hope so. But you know something? It is 2022. And we're asking the same questions in 2022 that we asked in 1970. We're having the same bottlenecks of how to get people of color, African Americans in the job force in 2022 that we asked in 1970. And I wish I had a magic pill, an answer, but I still say it's, it's people willing to think out of the box. NFL, I'm a, obviously, I'm not obvious, but I'm a football fan. And they were talking about African-American coaches. Terry, several years ago, they had the rule where you had to interview the African-Americans before you made a, a hire to coach. Six, seven years ago, they had three African-American coaches in the NFL. Today, we have 2022. We have one. And I, I know in corporate America, people want people around them that they're comfortable with. And I don't think that's any different than any walk of life. Well, let me say, and you're, I think you're right, but I have to imagine corporate America, not just with African Americans, but is far less monolithic than it was years ago. I mean, there's got to be yeah. all kinds of women and yeah. Asians and blacks yeah. and you know, Iranians and mm -hmm. Indians. But you know, I was in the workforce when women were really not in the workforce in significant positions. And when that barrier was broken, then women were more freely accepted into the workforce, much more readily, and than people of color. And once again, it's the boss, the middle manager is a little bit more f familiar with the woman than they were with the person of color. So if you had to give, I, I think you've given a good recitation of that, but if you had to summarize it, and this is only you thinking because nobody knows, what would you boil down to the basic challenge today? Why we're still talking? Why are we still having the same conversations in 2022? The answer to that question after a short break. Do you have something to say and want to make your own podcast? Let me tell you how to do that for free with Anchor. Anchor has creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's all you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. A few of you have asked how you can support independent journalism like you find at Full Measure and CherylAxon.com amid an increasingly managed and censored information landscape. At my website, Google Ads and Facebook have censored factual, footnoted, and cited posts, and Google demands daily that I remove dozens of pages from my website, which I won't do. These are factually accurate, cited news stories on topics that powerful interests apparently don't want you to know about. 
Well, now you can support off-narrative journalism by visiting the Cheryl Ackeson store at CherylAckeson.com for products that will tell the world you're an independent thinker. And there are great gift ideas there for your independent thinking friends and family, too. Proceeds go to support a variety of independent journalism causes besides maintaining the website, including funding college journalism awards for independent, off-narrative student reporting. You can make a difference. We're back, and just before the break, I had asked Dennis Baskett to summarize the basic challenges today, the lessons he's learned, why we're still having some of the same conversations in 2022. I think plain and simple, the, the people that make the decisions really don't see that if I do this, I'm going to get a leap. I'm going to be really better. And the data shows if I put a people, if I put a group of people, of diverse people, at a table, and I put a problem in the middle of that table, that that diverse team is going to come away with a much more comprehensive solution than a homogeneous team will. That's there. And so why we wouldn't grab that data and say, boy, it's been proven that if I, if I put diverse people at the table that think differently, they bring to the table, bring to the table thoughts that I don't have, that I'm going to solve problems a little better. The unconscious bias is my opinion. Someone might have convinced Kodak that they had competition with diverse thought, I'm thinking, in your... If they would have brought, just brought someone from the outside into Kodak and said, you guys, you guys got to pay attention to the outside competition, the Fuji of the world, because they're, you've got technology back here in the shelves and patents. You, you might want to bring that to a, make a startup company, put it on the side, let it run on its own. That's the different kind of thinking that might have happened if they'd have brought some thinking from the outside. So everybody's looking for, as I said, the magic formula. What would be the best thing you could say, not only when we're looking at Rochester, which is also trying to find a better path for the future, but other cities are going through the exact same thing. Based on your experience, what's your advice? I still think you've got to start with, I still, thought, I still think you have to really get companies to invest in the, the students, the educational piece of it. Because, you know, we do, we have internships. We had internships at, at uh, orthoclinical diagnostics. But more internships. Let, if you want diversity, in, and, and now I'm just speaking of, of, um, of corporate, but if you, want, if you want more cops that are diverse, if you want different fields to have a different look and feel, you have to invest at, in young people when they're much younger. So you give them an alternative not to go that way, they can go this way. And it really is easy, much easier for corporate America to do it because they can, I remember adopting, we adopted a school, Freddie Thomas, which was right around the corner from, from Bausch and Lam, and, it, and I used to go once a, once a uh, month. 
and I'd spend an hour with the young people, and we would take different pieces of uh, business, like how do you interview? How do you articulate? I don't care how smart you are, if you can't articulate, no one's going to know how smart you are. So we would work on diction, We're, and they'd, they'd be, oh, I know how to talk, Dennis, I know how to talk. But that's the investment I think corporations could make in kids of saying, you know what, this is what you, this is what you're going to have to do to be successful in this environment. You got to work hard. A lot of people work hard. You got to, you got to cross the I's and dot, cross the, <laughs> dot the I's and cross the T's. And if I have an investment and I see some successes in young people that I've invested in, I'm probably going to be a little bit more assertive, aggressive about saying, I've got a nice pool here. And I'm not saying that that's not being done. It's not being done on the scale that I think it, that, that it can be done. Anywhere in this country where if you want change, Start with, the, start with the kids when they're young, and you can change kids when they're young. Yes, you can. And I think that's so important. I think it's so important. And one last point. No, one last point. Um, it also helps leadership, middle managers, people that do the hiring and firing, build a relationship and they feel comfortable, and some of the unconscious biases that they may have had go away. They're, they're, I had my biases based upon my upbringing, and my biases went away after I became familiar with people that didn't look like me. And why? Because I had to work alongside of them in IBM. I didn't have that protective kind of surroundings where all my people that I interacted with were, were African-Americans. And that's, I think that's so important. How big of a company did Eastman Kodak, is that what we call them then? Eastman Kodak. How big were they in their heyday? Like you said, it's something billion dollar. I think it was, seven, I want to say 17, 18 billion dollar company. Oh. And I also want to say there was in the neighborhood of 65,000 Kodak employees in, in Rochester. Rochester alone. And, uh, and I think that's just a shell of itself. Now, it's, 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 no longer, it's no longer the mega company that it used to be. After they did an initiative to bring on board more minority workers, do you know what they reached in terms of percentage or ratio? You know what? That's interesting, and it's... And as high up as I was in the organization, I never knew that data. Data kept very close to the vest. That was Dennis Bassett, recently retired after a long executive career at Kodak, Bausch & Lomb, and Orthochemical Diagnostics. There's a lot more in my cover story on this topic, Sunday, February 20th. I'll also be talking to Robert Duffy, president and CEO of the Greater Rochester Chamber of Commerce, but interestingly, a former mayor, police chief, and lieutenant governor in New York. We'll have a look inside one of the successful Black-owned businesses in Rochester. 
and take a serious historical look at what's happened over the years in Rochester, New York, and what it could mean, what lessons could be learned for other cities. As always, to find out where Full Measure airs on a station near you, go to CherylAckeson.com, click the Full Measure tab, and you'll see a whole list of stations around the country. If you don't have one in your area, or if it's just easier for you to watch online, you can always go to FullMeasure.news, FullMeasure.news. We air the program live online at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Sundays, and then we post it there afterwards, so you can watch last week's program right now. We post it around noon Eastern Time on the Sunday that it airs. We also have an app called STIRR, S-T-I-R-R. It's free, a lot of other entertainment and news on that app, but you can watch Full Measure live or on replays there anytime. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Leave a review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. To hear the story I put together with this material, be sure and watch Full Measure Sunday, February 6th. If you're listening to this after the fact, you can watch a replay at fullmeasure.news. But to find out where it airs on Sunday, go to CherylAckison.com and click the Full Measure tab. That has the list of TV stations and all the other ways you can watch, including live or replays online and on our app STIRR, S-T-I-R-R. While you're there at CherylAckison.com, check out the Store tab and learn how to support independent journalism in an increasingly difficult information landscape while getting some cool products that say things like, do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.